Good morning. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 100. It says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. We always begin our time together hearing from God's word. God is, it's a reminder that God is always initiating with us, that he is the one that condescends himself down to our level. He initiates with us. And so we begin our worship service, whether it's at home there with your family or whether it's in person with God's call to worship. And so I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. And as people are beginning to log on, I just want to encourage you for just a moment to, to type something. Uh, I don't know what your setup is at home, but whatever it is, I encourage you type something right now into one of the live chats, whether you're with us on Facebook or whether you're with us on YouTube, type in the live chat. Pastor Tommy and I are there. It's just a great reminder that even though during this time we are separated and we're meeting in our homes, that we are still together and that we are together here right now this morning. And I'm so glad that you are here with us this morning. So let's just take a second. Everybody say hi. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a chance to do that. All right, now, as, as you're kind of doing that, I'm also just going to let you know about a few things. One, I really want everyone to know, we've done our best to try to communicate this, that we do have a new website up. Um, it's at the exact same location. Don't let that throw you, but go to newhopekent.org. Not right now. Later, um, go to that website and check it out. That is where you can get connected. And the, the idea behind the new website is we really want to connect with people. We want it to be more than just like a place that you go online and have a bunch of information, static information. We want our website and our digital presence to be able to connect us with people because that is our mission. That's literally our mission statement is that we want to be a, a church community whose purpose is to connect people to Jesus to each other and to ministry. And so I hope that you'll take a chance to go there. Um, that if you, if you want to request prayer, that's where you go. If you wanna get involved with something, that's where you go. If you wanna sign up for our newsletter, that's where you go. So please, I, I encourage you to take the time to go over there and visit the website. Now, as part of our, as we enter into our worship service, God has initiated with us. And whenever you approach God, or whenever we approach God together, um, one of the things we recognize and we realize is how far we fall short. And friends, the gospel is amazing. It is the gospel that gives us the freedom to admit where we are wrong, where we have sinned, where we are broken, and to admit our desperate need for God. Because it is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that says no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you continue to fail, your salvation, your identity, your worth is based on Jesus, his love, and his grace poured out upon you and not our works. And so with confidence, we approach God and we confess the places that we do fall short. Um, and so we're going to do a prayer of confession together. Uh, and I encourage you, especially if you're at home with other folks, that you, you, you can pause the video if you need to, or you can follow along with me, but that you say this together as a family or as a group of friends that are meeting together. So we're going to pray this prayer of confession together, and then we're going to pause for a moment of silent confession. So please pray with me. Oh God, these are your words. 
There is greater joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who do not need to repent. I need to repent. My sins and my weaknesses are constantly before me. I am greatly in need of a shepherd to seek me. For this reason, I rely completely on the gospel. O Lord, I know I am straying sheep and that you are the shepherd and the one who seeks the lost. I want to hold to this assurance. Help me, O God, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And I encourage you, uh, just take a moment of silent reflection and confession to your God. First Timothy 1.15 says this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Friends, believe the good news that in Jesus Christ you are forgiven. Now, next week we are beginning a new series called the Bible Sermon Series. And we're going to study many of the most famous stories in the Bible, but we will see how all of those stories are knit together to tell a bigger story, the story of Jesus. The passages are going to follow the table of contents in the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And today we are in that in-between space, between sermon series. And for a number of reasons... I wanted to take some time today to hone in and focus on the core of the gospel. The gospel and our gospel identity is what drives everything that we do. Before we dive into the power of the gospel to not only save us, but to create in us new hearts more and more as we apply it to our hearts, I want to commend to you this study by Tim Keller called Gospel in Life. Tim Keller, obviously, if you don't know him, but he is incredibly talented, intelligent. He has a deep understanding of the gospel and how our identities, how our self-images are deeply tied to our faith or lack of faith in the gospel. This is a study I'm hoping that we can do together as a church family one day. And in the meantime, I've relied heavily upon his teachings and his insights for this particular message. And so uh, if I referenced him everywhere as we went through this, we'd run out of time. I just want to give him credit up front, and um, I'll put a link down in the, in the bio for that study and also for a sermon that I, I looked at. So we're going to look at different passages today. But the foundational verse is the first part of Romans 1.16, where Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. When you stop and think about what is being said in this passage, it is amazing. The gospel is the power of God. The verse isn't, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it brings the power of God, or it results in the power of God, or it causes the power of God. It is the power of God. The gospel is God's power in verbal form. And the degree to which we get it, the degree to which we have faith in the gospel, it releases the power of God in our lives. And the degree to which we get the gospel wrong, or we don't fully embrace the gospel, is the degree to which we are robbed 
of its power. Now, for those of you who think that the gospel is just Jesus died for my sins, and yeah, I got that now, and I need to go on to something deeper. I was looking for something a little more advanced this morning. In fact, I remember one of my previous churches where I was called, we were doing the gospel in life study, and one of the small groups actually flat told me that they refused to do the study because they said, we already know the gospel, and we're going to go and study something different. We've already got it down. If that's where you are, Listen to Apostle, the Apostle Paul in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. And this them, this they there, is referring to the prophets of the Old Testament that foresaw and spoke of the coming good news, the gospel. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Later in this same chapter, verse 20, Peter writes that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Angels, who back with the prophets of the Old Testament, who before the foundation of the world have been looking at the gospel, are still not tired of it yet. And angels, by the way, just as a reminder, have an IQ, EQ way, way higher than you and I, and yet they long to look into these things. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God. Often, even though we understand the gospel enough, the principle to get converted, the actual way our hearts work, isn't immediately changed. Though we have a new identity, we are saved, we don't immediately begin living according to the gospel. For every one of your problems, your fallenness, your brokenness, there is an aspect, an application, a reflection of the gospel with your problem's name on it. In fact, every sin, every problem we face is a failure to believe or to have faith in the gospel. All deadness, divisiveness, pride in the church and in our lives is due to the fact because at some level, we are failing to believe in the gospel. Let me give you some examples. The first is a problem of sin that many of us, myself included, struggle with. And that is breaking the ninth commandment. If you don't remember, the ninth commandment uh, is basically don't lie. We don't always tell the truth. You've done this before, right? You get a message or an email or a text from Elder Ed Baldwin. And he's asking you for help with maintaining the church grounds to go out there for a work day to cut some grass. And you message him back and you say, hey, listen, Ed, I'd love to, but I really can't right now. When you actually really could go help, you're a liar. Or you don't mass message him back at all. That's usually what I, my go-to. Implying that you're so busy that you didn't even get the message, though you did. Again, liar. We don't tell the truth. Which is basically, I don't want to do that. Why do we say that? Because Why don't we say that? 
We don't say that because we want to keep up the image, our self-image, that we are basically good people. We don't tell the truth because we don't want the people we lie to to think poorly of us. Now the real problem isn't that we lie. It isn't that we broke the ninth commandment. It's that we broke the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Whenever we have a bad surface behavior, ultimately it's a deeper failure to trust in God, in the gospel, as our salvation and as our fulfillment, as the foundation for our self-image. The real problem when we lie is we are making something else our salvation, our hope, our meaning. In fact, I'm only tempted to lie when I'm not getting the thing I really, really need in that moment, human approval. If I utterly believed the gospel, that it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, I'm okay because of what Jesus thinks. If I actually believe that fully, there would be no incentive to ever lie again. If I'm ever tempted to lie, it's because there is a sin beneath the sin, which is always unbelief in the gospel. This is a difficult concept. Another example Tim Keller gives is when two different women around the same time came to him as their pastor, and both of them had teenage sons who were getting into trouble. They were doing badly in school, they were acting out, and they both had fathers who were completely remote and distant from the family. So the moms came in for pastoral counseling, and they were basically saying the same thing. It's one thing to ignore me, but now my husband is ruining my son's life too. So what did Pastor Tim say? Well, he said, forgive your husband. You're a Christian. That's what, that's what Christians do. We forgive people. And each woman, each woman asked in response, how? How do I forgive? And so he gave them a little book on forgiveness. I can give you one too if you want one. Now, husband one, number one, um, was better. He was just a better husband. And that wife was actually a far more active Christian, but she was unable to forgive. Husband number two was a far worse husband, and that wife was not nearly as active in the church, but she was able to forgive. Why? Well, for the first mother, her son was her whole life. Sure, she said she believed Jesus is my salvation, and she was certainly saved. But deep down in her heart, she said what many parents say, what I found myself saying, here's how you know if your life was a good life. Your child loves you, they are happy, and they have a good life. Being a good mother was a pseudo-savior. And so the first wife couldn't forgive, even though we are called to forgive, because she couldn't see that the smile of her son was vastly more emotionally valuable and important to her than the smile of God's son, Jesus. Now this doesn't mean she wasn't saved. She believed it at one level, but not at a deeper level. And until she did, she wasn't going to be able to make any progress. 
Let me give you one last example from the book of Galatians. Galatians is one of my favorite books in the Bible. In seminary, uh, we translated it verse by verse, word by word in the original Greek, and it's a clear proclamation of the gospel of grace. And yet, interestingly, it was written not to unbelievers who had never heard the gospel, but to Christians, to people who were losing their grasp on it, the meaning and the implication of the gospel in their lives. And so writing to Christians, Paul reminds them of the gospel. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes about this situation that he had with Peter. Peter and Paul have been eating and fellowshipping with the Greeks. And this contingent of Jewish believers comes up from Jerusalem. And as a result of that, Peter stops eating with the Greeks and he separates himself from them. And he begins to eat at a different table. And Paul, being Paul, calls Peter out on this. But it's what's crazy is he doesn't address the superficial behavior. Paul doesn't say, Peter, you're breaking the new no racism rule. The new rules from Jesus say we're not supposed to do that anymore. We eat together. Instead, Paul says it's fundamentally like everything about the gospel. Galatians 2.14 says, I saw that they Peter and the Jewish believers from Jerusalem, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. What Paul's driving at is, is that Peter was not letting his mind and his heart be shaped by the gospel. Now listen, there are some times that you just do things because it's in the Bible. It's hard. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. The Bible tells me so. The prevailing wellspring of your life, however, cannot be this. Let me say that again. The prevailing wellspring of your life cannot be that. The way to change, real heart change, is not behavioral modification. It's not using a rubber band to snap yourself when you do something wrong, but to use the power of the gospel that changes the heart. Because fundamentally, every sin, every failure is a failure to believe and apply the gospel. What are your reasons for obeying the rules? If it's fear and pride, then it's temporary. And really, you're simply restraining your heart, not changing your heart. The power of the gospel changes the heart. And it allows for lasting self-change as we become more and more like Christ, living out our new identity in Him. Now, as we talk about the heart, let's look at the different modes our heart can be in. And you know how, how cameras um, and other devices have different modes that you can twist and you can change. And in this one, you, you twist the, the knob on it and there's a portrait mode, there's action mode, there's auto mode. I had to look this up. And if you're like me, you usually just leave it on one mode, auto mode, because you don't know what all these other modes are really actually doing or how they're different. You can switch modes, but there is a default mode. And the same is true for our hearts. There are three modes that our hearts believe and act according to. The first one is, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. The second one is, 
I don't really have to obey anyone but myself. And the third one is, I'm accepted by God at infinite cost to Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. The first mode is the religious mode or moralism. It's avoiding God by working very, very hard to be incredibly good. So you feel that God owes you and you earn your own salvation. The second one is irreligious mode, avoiding God as Savior and Lord, disregarding God's law. And the third, of course, is the gospel mode, trusting in God to save. Now, of course, if I gave up a pop quiz, I'm sure that all of you watching, myself included, would choose number three. This is what we believe. But does your heart? the deepest levels, our hearts say, if I'm good enough, if I'm kind enough, if I reach my standards and live up to them, then and only then am I valuable and significant. Is that the language of your heart? If it is, that's the basic operating principle of religion. Christians who know the gospel in principle and who have been changed by it, nevertheless, like the Galatians, continually revert to work righteousness and self-salvation in a myriad of subtle and not-so-subtle ways. In fact, a basic insight of Martin Luther, famous reformer, was that religion is the default mode of the human heart. Martin Luther says that even after you're converted by the gospel, your heart will go back to operating on the religious principle unless you deliberately, repeatedly set it to gospel mode. Examine your heart and you will feel this tension. It's one of the reasons that my favorite, maybe my favorite hymn is Come Thou Fount, and particularly the verse that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. This, then, is the basic cause of our spiritual failures, our uncontrolled emotions, conflict, lack of joy, and ministry ineffectiveness. We believe the gospel at one level. But at deeper levels, we continue to operate in our day-to-day -day as though we are saved by works. If you are operating in religious mode, your heart's default mode, this is how you try to change, to affect change in your life. This is what you would do. You lie to someone, like we talked about earlier. Maybe it's a small lie. You realize it. Maybe <laughs> Elder Ed calls you on it, and you say to yourself, bad Christian. Oh, it's just, I'm such a bad, bad Christian. I need to tell the truth. Tell the truth, Samuel. And you buy a bracelet that reminds you um, that, to always do what Jesus did or an app. If you take this approach, you'll probably be good for three months and back it will come again. Whatever it is that you struggle with, your actions don't really change the heart. You decide to tell the truth out of fear you'll be punished or caught, or out of pride, 
You don't want to be like those other awful liars. And this is inherently unstable because you lie for the same reasons, fear and pride, that you don't lie, fear and pride. And you restrain your heart. You bully the heart rather than change it. And in the process, you've actually nurtured the roots of sin within your moral life. In religious mode, you bend the heart like tying a tree down, but it will always spring back. So, how do we then operate in gospel mode so that our hearts are changed bit by bit as we believe more and more deeply in the gospel, fully embracing our new identities? How do I now actually make progress in self-control. How do I become less of a liar? Well, let's look at scripture for a practical example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 um, uh, and nine, sorry, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul wants the people to give an offering to the poor. But he doesn't put pressure directly on their will saying, "I'm an apostle and this is your duty." What's interesting is he doesn't put pressure directly on their emotions either, telling them stories about how much the poor are suffering in Jerusalem and, and how, much, how they have so much more than those sufferers, and so shouldn't they give to help them? Instead, Paul vividly and unforgettably says in 2 Corinthians 8-9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see what he's doing? Paul brings Jesus' salvation and the gospel into the realm of money and wealth and poverty. He reminds them of the gospel. Paul is saying, think of Jesus' costly grace until you are changed into generous people by the gospel in your hearts. So the solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel where he poured out his wealth for you. Because of the gospel, you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and it gives you ultimate security if we believe it. Because of the gospel, you don't have to envy anyone else's money. Jesus' love and salvation confer on you a remarkable status and identity, one that money can never give you. What makes you a sexually faithful spouse, a generous person, a good parent or child is not just a redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ. Rather, it is deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out the changes that understanding makes in your heart, the seat of your mind, will, and emotions. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understandings, and identity, and our view of the world. It changes our hearts. Behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will be superficial and fleeting. The way we set our heart to gospel mode, to be melted and shaped, we have to see what Jesus has done.
done for us and move to I do the right thing because how can I do this to the one who died for me? If you know what he has done, then your motivation is that you want him. And friends, ultimately, that is the goal of the gospel. Reconciliation as the power of the gospel brings us home. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says this. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making a peace through his blood shed on the cross. The point of our faith isn't to be as moral and as holy as possible. Let me say that again because I think we miss it a lot of times. The point of our faith is not to be as moral and as holy as possible. The point of our faith is to come home, to be reconciled to God. And if you're listening to this sermon and you're thinking, oh great, this is how I'll fix myself. This is how I'll behave better so that I can be righteous. Friend, you've already slipped back into the heart default mode. Christianity isn't a system, a religion that's chief goal is to make you better, holier, wealthier, happier, or more content. A Christian is a follower of Christ, the Son of God, because they are in love. We are in love with dad. And it's bound to happen that we will grow in holiness because we grow to resemble what we love. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. The byproduct of loving dad is that you will become more and more like his true son. But ultimately, what we want is him. The same way you fall madly and deeply in love with someone, when you do that with God, through the power of the gospel, then you've come home. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The power of the gospel saves us, it transforms our hearts. The power of the gospel is what brings us home. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for a miracle. We understand and we recognize, we admit that our hearts are completely and totally broken and that we need you. We need your spirit. We need the truth of the gospel to penetrate into the darkest recesses of our hearts so that we might come home. Father, we pray that you would do this for us, that you would do that for those who are gathered here, for anyone who is watching this, whether it is now, this Sunday morning, or whether it is years from now, that they would seek you and that you, by the power of your spirit, would renew their hearts, give them hearts of flesh, change them, change us into people who love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude our time together, we started this time together with a, a 
prayer of confession where we confess the places we fall short and often in our worshiping worship gatherings together at the end we profess positively together what is it that we believe and so our question today uh, comes from a catechism the heidelberg catechism and this is heidelberg catechism question number 21 and the question is what is true faith so again i encourage you say these words out loud you are saying them together with us as a church family and with your family there at home say this with me true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. Friends, thank you again for joining us this morning. Um, if you want to talk to a pastor more, again, whether you're watching this now, this Sunday morning with us live, or you're, you're a friend that someone has shared this sermon with, and by the way, I encourage you, um, share, our, share these sermons with everyone, especially this sermon's focused on the gospel message. Take a moment, click the share button. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. Um, if you want to talk more about the gospel, if you want to talk more about Jesus, please email us. My email is samuel at newhope. Kent.org, email Pastor Tommy too. Um, next week, we're going to continue. We're going to start up our new series uh, with the, the Storybook Bible. I can't wait for that. I'm looking forward to our time together then. I'll see everybody next Sunday. Thanks.